Hi, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk about the state of circular fashion with Lewis Perkins. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Catherine Tedra. And I'm Danielle Arzaga. We're the founders of Population, a change agency, blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create the solutions to the biggest sustainability challenges facing our industry. This week, we're excited to talk to Lewis Perkins, president of the Apparel Impact Institute, about the state of circular fashion. Lewis is a champion for sustainability and social responsibility with a career centered around helping businesses find their soul. Hey, Lewis, thanks for joining us today. Hey, how's it going, Danielle? Good, good. So we'll just jump right in. Over the course of your career, you have been front and center to the evolution of circularity as a system. What innovations or shifts in the culture have had the most impact bringing circularity into the mainstream in this recent past? That's a great question. And thanks for bringing this up. Yeah. So I got started in the even this idea of circularity, circular economy and cradle to cradle when I joined the team at Mohawk Industries in their commercial division, which is a flooring carpet and tile laminate company out of North Georgia. And the carpet industry was such an interesting space because there were most of the key leaders were looking at um, one of the major issues they had been called out for, which was landfill waste. I mean, it was contributing, depending on the statistic that you heard, I think at the time we said it was 6% of all landfill was carpet. And that's pretty pretty significant when you add Mm -hmm. up, you know, global landfill and certainly U.S. landfill. And the whole culture around carpet was, you know, whether you're renting an apartment or you are leasing a new office space, the first thing you do to the landlord is you say, new paint, new carpet, right? So what that meant was when they were ripping it out, there was no seconds market for like, you know, sharing and reselling and all. It was just, which there could be, right? But what what was really happening was it was going right to landfill, perfectly new. So because the industry was getting called out, there was this initiative that was launched called the Carpet America's Recovery Effort. And the reason why this is interesting is because this this is showing up, you know, in the future of fashion. Like this is some of the bones, the, the, the dinosaurs of circular economy in the textile space because carpet really is, I mean, as it's evolved, it's become less of a textile woven. Most of it is, you know, tufted or, you know, there's different processes for making that broad loom and then the carpet towel, right? So that was the big revolution too, which is this modular business model idea of, hey, if you spill something or if it gets a lot of traction because it's in your waiting room where the foot traffic is, those squares can be removed. So it was efficiency of materials which complemented with the circularity of materials, you know, is kind of brilliant. And it's like what we're all looking at right now is efficiency plus, you know, optimization. So the technology and innovation that was happening there is a lot of what we're seeing and now need in the fashion industry, which was they had to reformulate, right? And so in order to say, hey, what are the primary materials that we're making all this stuff out of? And it was just a few, you know, 
wool was a really small, I mean, especially in commercial and even in residential, that's a very small sector. It's a higher price point. It's actually extremely durable and lasts longer. So from a sustainability perspective, although you have to measure it against the footprint of where the wool comes from, and you know, that was one consideration of materials, but really the rest of it was synthetic. And that's similar to the fashion industry, a lot of synthetic materials. In carpet, you could really put it down into sort of three primary materials for the face of it. And that was nylon, two forms of nylon and uh, polyester. So oh. then that created this interesting space around recycled poly. So the, the, so the carpet industry was the first one to create that demand pull for recycled poly from the food and beverage industry that now the apparel industry has really, I mean, how many things have you seen? Uh-huh. Like this is recycled content. And then it's like, we're keeping bottles out of the ocean, you know, is sort of the marketing side to it, or we're, we're helping create cleaner beaches and such that. So it was a similar kind of thing that's happened. I lay out that landscape because I think to look at what are the innovations that are necessary or needed, it's a lot of what that industry tackled. So then it was also disassembly, right? You could shear mm-hmm. off that top polyester or nylon and you could use that material, but then some of it would be stuck to this backing that couldn't be recycled. So now what about this backing? Can we get this recycling? And ultimately leading to 100% homogenous materials. So the whole thing could get chopped up, ground up and go back in was going to be more efficient than separating and pulling. Similar thing that we're really facing in the fashion industry around blends. Blended fabrics have long been sort of the nemesis of the environmental space. And certainly in the Cradle to Cradle book, they're called out as monstrous hybrids. This is a blend is, as you guys probably know, is when you're blending a natural fiber and a, and a synthetic fiber and creating something that is unable to be recycled. Now, I say that with a pause because it's not true anymore because that's where a lot of the innovation is happening. So the ability to separate those out and to have one stream go into the poly or whatever that material may be, and the other one go into a stream to upcycle it. And what's really creative around this technology and interesting is they're Companies out there like Evernew that are actually looking at taking that cotton and putting it into a cellulosic-based, next-gen, sort of bio-based, synthetic-like fabrics. And so that's where things are really getting interesting. And I think the barrier to this industry is just leaning in and accelerating a lot of those innovations and technologies. And then the back-end infrastructure, obviously building the, the collection systems, the sorting and all that. And I'm super encouraged. So when we talk about like what is happening and what's accelerating, it is a lot of these are moving into provable pilot projects where there's groups like Accelerating Circularity out of New York or a lot of the work that's happening out of um, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, Fashion for Good. You know, there are pilots that are running around. How do we solve for, you know, the collecting and the sorting of these materials and then building that infrastructure? And organizations like Closed Loop Fund, who are helping to invest in those infrastructures to build the take back systems, the technologies, the sorting, you know, and then so that an innovation like Evernews, and I'm dropping a lot of names of organizations, we can provide links later, but I think that plugs right in, right? That's where I I met you. I forgot to mention this, but you know, it's been some six years or so since I was so lucky to get with, to work with Stacy and her team. Yeah. And there is still these huge missing pieces in the system of, for the adoption of circularity. And you were starting to get there and we were going to ask what's missing in the, to accelerate yeah. circular adoption. 
and we are building these backend systems and there's a lot of industry coordination and um, organization happening. Is there something on the brand side that's still missing? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, and and when we talk about Apparel Impact Institute, the organization that I run, I'll talk a lot about that because I think the increased collective action is is critical now. And it's kind of the no-brainer, which is to move these things out of pilot and to start to, to do them across industry and suppliers and partners or regions where we're all operating. And so I think what's missing is moving these from pilot into a logical scale phase. And when I talk about AII, I'll talk about our theory of change. Go for it. Talk about project. it. You want to go oh, in? Yeah. yeah. So I really think we have to almost like gamify all this as if it's like, you know, something where you're actually like pulling levers and going higher up the scale or higher up the mountain or whatever, which is we need to have very specific milestones associated with where we're going. I think the first decade of sustainable fashion was a lot of just I'll call it, borrowing from my cradle to cradle world, inventory and assessment. Who are we and totally. where are we? What are the issues? Can we organize ourselves around that? Can we join groups? Can we launch some groups focused on different areas? First decade. And probably with most movements like this that are this ambitious, the first 10 years is around inventory and assessment. And then it's really around, okay, now what are the key issues in which we have to meet? So it's like global planetary issues along with where we are as an industry. And I think that's where we are right now too. And we talk a lot about climate, although water, biodiversity, material impact, you know, I think it's hard to separate them out. But when you look at it as sort of a holistic driver, you can kind of start to see this sort of, if we can have solved for climate, a lot of these other issues are automatically going to come with it. It's not that they're going to be dealt with separately. They're actually going to come along because they're they're part of a greater efficiency and optimization pathway. And so I take that cradle-to-cradle framework of inventory assessment and optimization and then really look at, well, screening is in there too, right? You got to know what you're doing that you don't need to do anymore. So it's that, you know, knowing what you're doing, dropping out the things you no longer need to do, screening them out. That's where restricted substance lists for chemistry happen. That's where you start to say no more of this bad activity. That's where policy plays in a lot of the landscaping around policy and then assessing and optimizing like, okay, now where do we go? And the assessment optimization phase is prime for collective action because a lot of this early stage stuff is figuring out who you are in the landscape as a company, as a brand, as an individual, as a CEO, as a designer, what do I stand for? What do I believe in? What's out there? Where do I need to plug in? What's most meaningful to me and my brand and my customers, right? And then we start to kind of get into this place of now it needs to move into a we and not just a me. So I think to me, the ability to kind of move things into a logical scale phase where we're doing this is collective action. And when I say collective action, I mean the industry as a whole should be around the proverbial table saying, we're working on this chemical pilot thing in India. Will you guys join us? You're also sourcing from these common suppliers. You also have some mandates related to water stewardship in India. You know, like, let's get it on the table. Let's start talking. Let's start looking at where we can actually address these things together and defragment the multitude of initiatives, programs, organizational mandates, let's bring it all into one kind of roadmap and play. I'm curious from that place, Lewis, with your work with AII, 
I mean, I've seen you in action that one time at that conference and you literally are the person rolling up your sleeves. You're very co-creative and I've seen you kind of garner collaboration from a big room of people. And with the work you're doing, are you seeing kind of a missing, what's missing from like the panels, the conferences, all of the, the actions that are happening? Are you seeing something that's missing? Are you feeling like there's not those spaces that are as co-creative as what you want them to be? Mm-hmm. And is AII facilitating that? It's a great question. And I appreciate it. First of all, thank you for the compliment. I think that the way I'm wired is to partner and align. That's just the way I, I see it. And this is the thing that I always remember is we need it all. We need all of it because every one of our initiatives or programs might be resonating in a different way. What we don't need is different targets for environment. Where are we headed? We need, we need the same destination. We need to agree on the destination. Mm. We need to agree on the data. We really need to agree on the data sets and ways in which we can share that data in a way that helps us use insights to move into the right direction. If we're fighting over the uh, methodologies and we don't agree, and some of that's just going to exist. But as a overarching, can we as an industry agree on which tools and methodologies and, and programs that we're using because we don't need to fragment that space. It just makes it harder if everybody's working mm-hmm. through data sets. And then it goes back to where we were before, which is everybody's being asked to do 10 projects that are kind of the same, but they're for different, you know, with different reasons to do it. And that we and we put manufacturers in that position a lot because I think Western approach, maybe, or maybe it's not even Western, maybe it's just the brand retailer approach to kind of say, this is our signature program and we want you to roll this out in your facility. So that's where AI, you ask, what is AI doing? So we actually get a whole bunch of players around the table and we say, it's not, you know, it's not the one brand you know, planet, planet approach. And we want you to roll this out in your facility. We have agreed as a consortium of five, 10, 15, 20 brand retailers who are all operating in your region and your facilities in your country. We're all agreeing on, you know, which programs we want to scale when it comes to climate energy efficiency, when it comes to coal elimination, when it comes to scaling renewables, when it comes to material efficiency, when it comes to preferred materials, when it comes to new and next generation materials, maybe it's some space to still be kind of creative and proprietary there, but you know. And then finally, when it comes to leveraging and building circular models. And if we can agree that it's now time that we're doing that as a collective, we're just gonna accelerate. that. So that is what we're doing at AII, is we're bringing brand retailers together. We're looking at common supply chains and hotspots and regions to focus on with core issues, the ones I just rattled off. And then we're plugging in funding, we're plugging in program technical experts, and we're recruiting manufacturers as a family, as a family from the industry, as opposed to individual players, right? I love that you talk about that we kind of need to have this shared vision of what the destination is. One of the things that we talk a lot about as it relates to our work with population and with Unspun is that the industry really approaches sustainability issues in silos, that we look at kind of the environmental components to sustainability and the social components to sustainability. And that is also true of circularity or has been true of circularity historically. And we're curious your perspective on that. You know, how do we create this shared vision for where we're going when we're approaching issues so separate? And there seem to be many more opportunities than we take advantage of to combine our efforts and really look at how do we address the entire value chain from a really holistic sustainability standpoint. 
so what you said is so true and so important and such an important topic. So what I'll say is that is accurate, but I don't think we entirely, there's not one party to blame for that. I think in part, we NGO nonprofit community are to blame sometimes because we create competing initiatives and then we force the brands to join all of them. So those silos already exist. And at the beginning, it was like, well, I might have a different staff person at the company who's focused on social labor, and I might have a different staff person who's focused on circular design principles because they're from the design background, and I might have a different person who's looking at carbon and and from the the sourcing manufacturing team, and they may reside in Hong Kong or you know somewhere in Asia. And so this siloed thing also happened because we're talking about big companies with big areas and. One of the good things is the sustainability has moved from being this department to being across all departments and all all functionality within the system. And that's amazing because then we, we can start to kind of move things across and out of these individual silos. But there's still that that concern, as I described, that it might like, oh, all our circular work belongs over in that building and all of our, you know, carbon climate related work belongs in that building. So I would say in some ways, you know, it can be driven a lot by just organizational structure. It can be driven a lot by the fact that those organizational leaders inside brand retailers were actually piping into different nonprofit NGOs and programs. And that's kind of the way it was born. But that's okay. When you know better, you do better. And now we're at the place of maturation where we can start to bring all this together. So about two years ago, I'll share maybe three, there was a group that was pulled together called the Fashion Conveners. And we are a non-governance, but we're sort of a club, I guess we'd say. We We joined it with the agreement that we all sort of represent a different baton in the relay race. And we all fit too, because we're all in the same relay race, but one person may be social labor, one person may be, you know, convening brands, one person may be digital technical tools for tracking, tracking impact, one may be scaling impact solutions, but together we fit as the solution, right? And we're not the only ones underneath us or all these other players that can plug into our topic groups, right? Because there's a vast planet of people that are working on these things. So good step in it was once we could get clear on what the relay race looked like, what our swim lanes were, so to speak, we could go to brands and start talking about that. And increased partnership is happening rapidly out of this group because we are actually now having all these conversations and saying, hey, we're doing a financial tools report. You're doing one too? What's yours about? Oh, yours is about new innovation. Ours is about carbon. You know, And, and what if we actually looked at it as a, as a whole project or program together. And this is a real world example that is happening because we weren't, uh, because we are at the table. Whereas before, you know, in the last two years, we saw a lot of reports launched that were like, oh, one more climate report, another climate report. And it's like, are any of these people talking to each other? You know, are they they working with the same data sets? Because, you know, I'm not sure I understand what the carbon impact is of this industry based on reading four different reports with four different results. And so to answer your question, it's the right time to do it. We're nine years towards the science-based target commitment of 2030. Like us getting this right here is going to only help brands to be able to accelerate this sort of collective approach, lower the confusion, defragment the multitude of players and positions and pieces, and just create alignment and streamline this thing. Yeah. That's super, super cool to hear about, you know, different organizations who might have different focus areas convening into a holistic approach. We talk about that a lot and thinking through how do 
we integrate these different impact areas into kind of a framework for sustainability. One of the conversations that we've been having is looking at the just transition framework and how is that like a template for looking at how we think about business. And one of the ways that we've been thinking about it is that, you know, if we consider circularity versus linearity to be the shape of our economic model, then like the social components are the nature of our relationships. How equitable are they? How much are we supporting people to thrive? And I think that's where equity comes into this conversation a lot is is looking at those those relationships, person to person, organization to organization. So we'd love to hear you share a little bit more about how you're thinking about that from the perspective of AI and some of the other work that you're doing. Part of what I realize is it's very easy for us to say, here's what the solution for climate looks like. We've developed it out of our offices in San Francisco in our partnership with our partners in Amsterdam. And we're going to bring this into your country and tell you to do this. That's not going to necessarily be the right approach. So one of the things that AII does is we build program, we, we conceptualize programs, but then we go and seek the right on the ground partner so that our programs are not only embraced, but maybe even co-created or collaborated, or maybe even partially owned in part, you know, it's not really an ownership thing, but I mean, that there's, that there's a feeling like this is our program within that country, not like this is a program from somewhere else. And that needs to be done authentically, which means the creation process, the design process needs to be done in collaboration where there are equal partners on the ground in those regions who are like, this is our country. This is our clean energy. This is our water you're talking about. And we want to be a part of building it. We love that you're bringing some expertise that maybe you figured out somewhere else great, but, you know, we want this program to be really embraced by ourselves. And and so that's where I think it's important that AII is fostering those on-the-ground partnerships. And so far, that's what we do. I don't want to build a huge staff globally. I want to be able to partner and plug into existing work streams on the ground regionally that are doing the work and then empower. And if we can bring funding that's from other sources outside the country, great. If we can help activate funding within the country, great. We're happy to help remove whatever barriers we can, but we need to be really thinking about this carefully, that this is not our top-down Western approach. I love that you're thinking about it that way, because I think what we've seen throughout the industry is that when when we approach problem solving from a top-down hierarchical model, we end up creating a lot more problems, um, or we completely disregard problems that as uh, an individual we're not impacted by. And so you look at like in, in, this isn't necessarily circularity, but something that people often think about, especially consumers, when we talk about circularity is secondhand and the secondhand market. And when we donate our clothes to Goodwill that we're contributing to a secondhand continuation of life of our product. And yet that has created huge issues in other countries where we're exporting all of our secondhand clothes. And so I think that's a really prime example um, in a specific way of how we create problems when we're really limited in who we include in our solutions building. So then cross-pollinating your brains with other people not like you from other cultures that are sitting in your work groups that are saying, oh, but did you think of it this way? Or, oh, we don't actually work that way here. You know I mean? Like we've got to open that up. And then secondly, even with our, in our own leadership, I mean, our board is diversified, but as we grow and build, always a mindfulness towards who's helping shape and direct and guide me. And that as I'm building out my team even further, that I'm looking for not the same kinds of people. And that's a challenge because 
in many ways, those who are educated in this space may look similar and have similar backgrounds. So what does that mean going back into our relationship with hiring or internships or practices around how do we make this accessible to more people and not just at the Ivy Leagues or not just at you know certain pockets, but where do we start to dig into bringing more young people into building their learning, their education, and their willingness to say this matters and means something to me. I feel like this is relevant to me. I care about this. And that's that's something that I think we're all being asked to do as we sort of take a inventory again, you know, of ourselves. And uh, and sometimes that's sort of a values inventory or a moral inventory around what's right within, you know, how we interact with people. And then we when we are doing something that's not right, that we're promptly addressing that. And that's, that oftentimes takes having other people at the table to see it and to have them share with us, you know, that's not accurate here or that's not, that's not how this will work for this group of people or for myself, you know. I'm hearing you say, Lewis, that stakeholder engagement is obviously the key to moving forward in the industry. And it's interesting to see some of the frameworks that are being built out that there's just a literal placeholder on the screen. And I'm curious if you feel like the conveners groups are ready to take on the building out of those. Yeah, so social and labor is hugely important, critical. You cannot say you've improved the supply chain and you've actually made steps in the right direction if we still have forced labor. It's great if you have zero carbon, but is there forced labor? (laughs) Or are there other, you know, you're paying a living wage. This is a space that I think for me personally, maybe almost resonates with me sometimes even more than environmental issues, you know, because at the end of the day, I believe, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that sort of believes like um, this is a human problem because the planet's going to be just fine without us. Although we're taking some species down in the process and that's not cool, but you know, without us, it'll correct and it'll, it'll flourish and develop what it needs to. So I'm sort of like, this is about humans figuring out, do we want to stay here or not? And do we want to preserve ourselves? Which means, that social and labor issues, human rights issues, human respect issues, you know, all the aspects of the of the sustainable development goals that are in there show up here. So for me personally, it's important. I would lead AII to take on any project in this space if if brought to the table with the right partners and funding, which is kind of how we work, which is somebody comes to the table and says, we want to scale this program. The space has been complicated because not everybody can agree on the best practices and they vary by region, right? So as you dig dig in, it's not easy. Is the conveners addressing it? It, We are. We do have um, certain organizations like ILO at the table that are working with us around ensuring that that plugs in. But I would say, you know, the convener, uh, other CEOs and executive directors would probably answer it the same way I am, which is we recognize it's getting closer to be time where these things come together more readily. And I think that they they will, they should, they must. And then, so how do the two pieces fit? I mean, I think for me, the the Generation F is a lot of, and it's and it's not just me directing sort of the direction of it at the highest level, twofold. One, it's the youth. We're listening. I mean, it's a listening tour where we're recording and listening. And then based on that, we see themes and trends, and then we layer that in. And then Domenica Leibowitz, who's sort of my creative art director and strategist on sort of the content and vision of it. We, we have a lot of conversations around, you know, these issues that we want to address in, in the docuseries. And then it's, it's really, it's making it 
more clear on the AII programmatic side that these are issues that, you know, that are needing to come in. So part of what we'll be positioning out in the world is how to do more corporate screenings of this content, not only for inspiration, but also maybe potentially what can we agree to or pledge as individuals within companies, organizations, so that we start to get more companies embracing this um, as, yes, this is the direction in the future that we want to support as well, too. And we want to find ways to activate and engage everyone in our companies to be part of that pathway. Because I think the docu-series is validating all the work that we're doing within the Alliance, the conveners, you know, all these groups that I'm part of, of NGOs and nonprofits, like it all is getting justified over here. And anybody who's sitting in a sustainability office inside a brand retailer or a manufacturer who sees it is going to go, oh, this is justifying why I have a job, like why I'm here, because there's demand and need is being identified by the future generation. And so the tipping point episode is really about that. It's about the next generation. It's about setting up what are the issues. Each episode then is going to dive into more of specific areas, materials, technology, circularity, values, you know, as we go on. Just to close, we like to ask all of our guests, what is the number one question you are asking the industry right now or you want to ask the industry right now in order to achieve real and lasting change? Yeah, well, you know, one of the questions, one of the things that I put, I, I think this is a very individual, I mean, I, what I mean by that is communication-wise, I want to reach individuals. I want to like get out from behind all the, you know, sort of the wonky language we use around our working groups. And, our, and I want to, I hope that we can start to speak to people's hearts. And it was one of the reasons why AII, which is pretty technical in what we're doing with programs, I wanted to foster this this docu-series because I want to be able to reach people's hearts and sort of help them kind of get this. And so the question that we've had for a long time is what is the world that you want for your children? What is the world that you want for your children's children? And I think a lot about sort of the indigenous seventh generation concept of what we do today has impact for the next seven generations. Similarly, what happened in the last seven generations we're dealing with today, I think 2020 reminded us of that in this country, that there's a lot of unresolved things that go back two, three, four, five generations and up to seven and longer generations that are still very fresh and present. So this work that we're doing today is also positive or negative going to have an impact for a long time? So that's the question I ask of individuals and individuals inside companies, the CEO, the head of design, the sourcing person. I know you have a job. We all do. And I know that at the end of the day, it's about increasing you know, our productivity within our department and ultimately our companies and our stock value and, and all that. But we can design a future where our companies are operating from a place that is that is respond beyond responsibility it's really around existing within the world in a way that leaves all humans and all species in a long-term positive you know direction and and that we're you know as bill mcdonough would say you know to love and honor all the species all the children of all the species for all time and i think that's a beautiful way to to think about it i love that saying too that really struck me the first time i heard I can't remember. It was one of them. I saw one of them speaking yeah. at a it's conference. In the book. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is the book. I think it's the opening quote or mm-hmm. or yeah. So I love I love that. And making it personal, I think, does hopefully inspire people to take more decisive action towards making and, the world a little bit better of a place. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I just say like in days when my fear comes up or I feel competitive or whatever, if I can just go, wait, what, what am I part of? Oh, I want to work with them. I want them to survive. I want them to exceed, you know? And so it moves it out of, again, that fear scarcity into this abundant place that us all working together in a place that we all, we want everybody to rise. Right. And that's kind of, that's what that, statement says to love and honor. I think I'm paraphrasing it, but you know, all the children of all the species for all time. We do have one last question for you. And that is if you could shout out your unspun hero, as we are calling them. So someone in the industry that maybe isn't getting enough, they're not on a platform or getting enough attention at the moment, but is doing great work. You know, that one was really hard for me. And I really wanted to come up with one name in person for you. And I think because I work with so many people, I also was like at the Academy Awards, you don't want to, oh, and I forgot. Oh, and I forgot. Oh, I have 37 unsung heroes, unspun heroes to share with you. I think it's this docu-series and these youth, like every one of them, we've done 35 interviews and we have, we've got 15 more I know we'll do. And that's just to get like the first five episodes, we're not, they're not all in it in a, in a major way. But when you look at uh, each one of these youth, they're just, they're so inspiring to me. And one of the, the reasons I wanted to do this was to elevate their individual work, their passion, and for them to be able to inspire their generation and peers and us. Like I want us, meaning, you know, those of us that are 15, 20, 30, 40 years older, I want us to change as a result of paying attention and listening to their fear, listening to their anger sometimes, and really understanding where it's coming from and then being help, helping them get access, equity, agency to do their work. That's wonderful. So inspire up. I think that's a great thing to, to or a great, let's say, group of unspun heroes. And we can't wait to see your docuseries. Great. So, Genoseries.com. Go sign up and you can get on the list. Cool. Thank you, Thank you Lewis. Lewis. Thank, Thank you, guys. you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate, appreciated your response. And it was just a pleasure to have the conversation Honor. with you. Thank you. I'm honored. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Lewis Perkins, for sharing his perspective on the industry. You can follow Lewis at Apparel Impact Institute on Instagram. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at wearepopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed by Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.